Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, since I've already said that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am very frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way, you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wronged, but in order that your devotion to us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. In addition to our own comfort, we rejoiced even more over the joy Titus had because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. For if I have made any boast to him about you, I have not been disappointed. But as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus has also turned out to be the truth, and his affection towards you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of all of you, and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. see you. Um, are you an encourager? Are you an encouraging person? You know, everybody needs encouragement. I remember a mom who watched us. Her son was increasingly discouraged as the week went by. By the time Sunday morning rolled around, he didn't even want to get out of bed. Alarm goes off. He hits the snooze. Won't get up. Finally, she walks into the room and says, son, it's time to get up. From under the covers, he mutters, give me one good reason I should give up. I should get up. He says, she says, I'll give you three. First, it's Sunday morning. It's time for church. Second, you're 43 years old and you should know better. Third, you're the pastor and everybody's expecting you to be there. Everybody needs encouragement because we all get discouraged. Research confirms that. Years ago, there was a study conducted measuring people's capacity to endure pain. 
the study included this bucket of ice water that they would have people step in. There were two different groups. There was one group, the person would stand in the bucket of ice and, and they would have an encourager there. Second group, no encourager. They wondered what the difference in the two groups would be. The result was predictable. The person with, a, with an encourager could actually endure the pain twice as long as somebody who was alone with no encouragement. Everybody needs encouragement because life is so hard. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Worry weighs a person down, but encouraging words cheer them up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build each other up. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another daily while it's called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deceit. Hebrews, or, uh, Proverbs 25.11, a word spoken at the right time is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Are you an encouraging person? This is especially important if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Some would argue that there's no more important work of the church than encouragement. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. Somebody has observed encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it is spread from one person to another. You're never more like Christ than when you encourage the weary or the broken or the lost. So we come to 2 Corinthians 7, this passage that was just read for us, and it really encourages us to be encouragers. It's kind of a pay-it story, pay-it-forward story. It shows us here how Paul encourages the Corinthians, Titus encourages Paul, the Corinthians encourage Titus, which then also encourages Paul, reminding us that everybody can encourage. You don't need to have extra brilliance or special gifts, as the Corinthian church shows us, you don't even have to be particularly spiritually mature. You just have to have a heart that cares. You have to have eyes that see. You have to have a willingness to take some action. My goal for us is that each of you, each of us will leave this place today hungry to encourage other people because we recognize we see a world starving for encouragement. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your words are always true and they're always powerful. Um, Lord, in a world that is so challenging, I thank you that we can trust you and that you will lead us, that you will allow us to rise above by your power and direction. And so, Lord, to this end, I pray that you would be honored today through Christ, I pray. Amen. Paul encourages the Corinthian church. We see here in verse 4, I'm very frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am o- I'm overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. Can you imagine how weighty this encouragement was coming from the Apostle Paul? It's especially encouraging because Paul's words previously to them have been so difficult. Read the letter of 1 Corinthians that Paul sends to this church, and you can see he is stern with them. He challenges them in no uncertain terms about their sinfulness, their immaturity, their divisiveness. So now when Paul comes with these encouraging words, they mean that much more to them. I think Paul had been concerned. If you are, um, if you have a personality like the Apostle Paul, 
you know sometimes you just want to be clear, but you can come across a little bit angry. Paul was afraid that he'd come across a little bit too stern, and maybe he'd shut them down. And so he writes in verse 8, although I caused you cause, uh, sorrow in my letter, I don't regret it. Paul was afraid he'd cause them too much sorrow. But now word's gotten back to Paul through Titus that they listened, that they'd repented, that they were appreciating what he had to share. He's so relieved. But that honest rebuke earlier made these words more powerful when they're heard. A person who's candid with you in tough times with tough words is the kind of person you can trust when they praise. Remember Eddie Haskell from Leave It to Beaver, those of you who are old enough? If you don't know, by the way, you should do a little spiritual investigation and watch Leave It to Beaver. Eddie Haskell was always flattering the, 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 you know, Mr., the, the, the parents and the, the, the Cleavers. And, and the Cleavers, they weren't buying, a, buying it for a second. F- encouraging friends aren't phony. Um, I think one of the reasons my mom was a great salesperson is because she was an honest person. Um, it was funny, my mom would tell you she wasn't, she, she wasn't a salesperson. When, my, when I was growing up as a kid, my mom worked at a clothing store um, that sold like suits and dresses and that kind of stuff, nice stuff. And mom said when somebody came, she just wanted to help them, and so she was just candid. If a, if a dress didn't look so good, she'd say, I don't think that's, that looks good on you. I don't think that's your color. I if a suit didn't fit, she didn't say, oh, I think that's a suit for you. you know, no, she was really honest. So that when she told them, that looks really good, they believed her. Her boss loved her because nobody could outsell her. But she didn't try to sell. She just wanted to be honest. Verse, chapter 20, um, uh, Proverbs 29, verse 5 says, A person who flatters his neighbor spreads out a net for his feet. Think about that. You, it's like buying a car from a used car salesman and says, oh, I think that's a perfect car. For, I can, can't you see yourself driving that car? I can see you getting the commission from me driving this car. Yeah. So his flattery is like chewing gum. Enjoy it, but don't swallow it. The coach who never praises, uh, I'm sorry, who never corrects and just always praises may have a team with high self-esteem, but they're going to be sloppy. Parents who always praise but never say no, never discipline, are going to have kids that become addicted to the external praise and have a hard time with boundaries. Again, 2 Timothy 4, 2 in the Bible says, preach the word, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Isn't that interesting? The correcting and rebuking makes the encouragement more powerful, but you need all of them. I'm so thankful for the first sermon that I wrote on my internship at Southeast Christian Church. The preacher looked at it, and he did not say, oh, Brett, that's really great. That's going to be super. He said, Brett, good sermon. Everybody's going to agree with everything you said. How are you going to challenge him? I said, Brett, there's no challenge in this sermon. It's like, whoa, that's really good. Do you know how many times I've shared that advice with young preachers since then. That, some of you are probably wishing he hadn't given me that advice. But every time I preach a sermon, it's like, how are you going to, don't just have people agree with you, how are you going to challenge him? But I knew because he shared with me the hard word that I could trust him when he praised. Paul encourages them in several different ways. He, he also encourages them by his consistent character. Look at verse 2. 
We've wronged one, no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. That's so encouraging because it's not hard for ministers to take advantage of people. I think sometimes, sadly, it's intentional. I think most of the time it's not intentional. For instance, the drunken ribeye from Sweetwater. If you come to New Life very long, you know that I think the drunken ribeye from Sweetwater is like the closest thing to, it's a foretaste of heaven. At least it wasn't before it got so expensive. Um, uh, and, but I find that drunken ribeye works as a sermon illustration in so many different ways that I've used it. And you all are so kind, every once in a while someone will say, hey, let me take you out for a drunken ribeye. Or, or maybe at Christmas somebody will buy gift certificates so that my wife and I can go to Sweetwater and get a, a drunken ribeye. And there's a part of me that feels kind of guilty. It's kind of like, oh no, I didn't share that illustration so you'll give me a, you know, a drunken ribeye or give me gift certificates. I have noticed that my New Life shirts are getting kind of old, by the way. And the car I'm driving isn't running so well recently. Some question Paul's sincerity because, because part of his purpose in this missionary journey in Turkey and Greece area was to collect funds because the Christians in Jerusalem were experiencing a famine. That was the church in Jerusalem that started these churches. And so Paul was collecting funds up here to take them back to Jerusalem, and his opponents were saying he's just taking advantage of people for his own benefit. And it's in that context that Paul says, we have wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one, and being that kind of person is encouraging. More than that, Paul encouraged them by, their, by his willingness to sacrifice. In verse 3, I don't say this to condemn you since I have already, I already have you in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul said, I, I would die for you. One of the reasons that we celebrate Memorial Day, the, the most important reason we set aside Memorial Day, recent, uh, Memorial Day weekend is to show appreciation to people who cared enough for us to sacrifice their lives so that we could be free, who more than self their country loved. And that's encouraging, and it's right for us to show appreciation. That's why we celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day. Parents sacrifice because they care. NFL fans recognize the name of Jack Youngblood, even though he played in the late 70s and the 80s, early 80s. NFL fans remember Jack Youngblood, who was the defensive end team captain for the Los Angeles Rams. Why? Because he played on a broken leg. In the 1980 playoffs, he broke his tibia. And basically, there's a picture. I think there's a picture here of show. The other one left. That's where he broke the tibia. But he said, basically, he said, wrap it up. I'm going back in the game. And he kept playing. John Madden, remember John Madden, the football coach? He said, if a Martian landed in my backyard, knocked on my door and asked, what's a football player? I'd go get Jack Youngblood. And the guys who played with him loved playing with him because they knew he was going to give his all even if it was in pain. There's an old saying that some people call in sick, some people crawl in sick. Now, if you have COVID, don't crawl in sick. But you know that. You know the kind of person that you can depend. 
there's some people that it was, it, any kind of thing, they're just going to quit. And then there are those people who say, I will, I will sacrifice for you. That's so encouraging. That's the kind of person Paul was. That's the kind of person many of you are. I'm so encouraged by how many of you sacrifice. People who come here week after week, set up and tear down. Kim Ferguson has set up, has done set up and tear down for 30 years at New Life. And she refuses to take a week off unless she's not here. Mavis Solomon comes and makes coffee for us here. Sunday after Sunday. And that encourages me because that keeps you awake during my sermons. <laughs> Erica Hubbard has taken over the responsibility of our prayer team. And you know, she has to constantly be on top of that. She's regularly sending us e emails throughout the week saying, this is a request that came in. Many of you saw Doug Demarest when you walked in here today. He's been manning that front door for since we opened the doors here at the end zone. He's been part of servants since even before that. But frontline people are here early every Sunday morning, week after week after week. Wally Simmons in his service for Celebrate Recovery, as well as helping people beyond, beyond what we can see. Mark Scheider has run sound for almost 30 years. I think when Mark sleeps, he probably sees our soundboard in his sleep. I think about kids' zone teachers like Christine Heath and Glenn Ledebor and Carrie Wall and many others who serve not just like occasionally, not just every other week, but like week after week after week after week. They're her, here to serve your kids, to teach your kids, to serve you so you can be here. That encourages me. Clay and Gina Shepherd, who lead our Passion for Community Ministry, which is a nonprofit, it makes me feel, it almost makes me feel guilty how much they sacrifice of their time and energy to organize and to go on deliveries and to organize volunteers. I understand, I was told there are 15 people who consistently and sacrificially serve in Passion for Community. Mark Purdy and Jason Reynolds, for instance, consistently go on deliveries twice a month. So people who are getting into homes for the first time, homeless, former homeless people have basic needs. Don't you feel encouraged right now by them and their sacrifice? Who's encouraged by you? That's so difficult in the me generation where most people are asking what's in it for me. Paul says, I die for you. In a me first generation, so I'm like, well, but if I die, what's in it for me? We look... Please understand, we live in a generation whose finest, whose highest priority is pleasure, happiness. It's the highest value. And anything that doesn't achieve that happiness and pleasure is wrong, is not to be valued. When you say with the apostle, I'll die for you, it's counterculture, it's impressive, it's encouraging. Paul also encouraged with affirming words. Verse 4, I have great pride in you. I'm filled with encouragement. I'm overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. Some of you remember the one-minute manager, Ken Blanchard. Some of you are saying, Brett, the 80s called. They'd like their references back. Um, he used to say, catch him doing something right. It's easy to go around criticizing people, what they do wrong. It takes an encourager to catch him doing something right. Titus then encourages Paul 
Isn't it interesting that even Paul needs encouragement, 2 Corinthians 7, 5? When we came into Macedonia, we all had no, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears within. I love Paul's vulnerability in 2 Corinthians. So many times, he just really opens up to them. He says, I was worn out. Macedonia is north of Corinth, by the way. We'll talk more about that next week. Paul said, when I got here, I was, I was worn out. I was tired of facing opposition from city to city. I was worn out by fear, worn out for concerns that churches that I had started were going to crumble. People that I led to Christ were going to stray. I think he was worn out by realizing his own ability to fail. Vince Lombardi said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Everybody needs encouragement. Stephen Brown said, we should pray for the strong because they are weak. That word encouragement literally means to put into the heart. When you encourage somebody, you put courage into their heart when they're feeling discouraged. Even the strong need encouragement. Michael Jordan, you would think, wouldn't need encouragement. When, when he was asked why it was so important to him, when his dad would come to his games, he would say, well, if my dad was there, I always knew I had one fan. Parents, it means so much for your kids, for you just to show up. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, two of the greatest fictional writers of the 20th century. You would think, these are two mature men. They are men. They shouldn't need encouragement. But some in literary circles argue that if they hadn't had their friendship to encourage each other, we wouldn't have Chronicles of Narnia. We wouldn't have Lord of the Rings because Tolkien led Lewis to Christ, and Tolkien would get discouraged about his writings, and Lewis would encourage him, no, you need to keep writing. This is good stuff. Chuck Swindoll says, even the secure, mature person needs massive doses of encouragement as we slug it out in the trenches. Pray for the strong because they are weak. Again, Hebrews 3.13, let us encourage one another daily for so we are not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Paul needs encouragement. And he gets encouragement because Titus brings good news from Corinth, verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus, not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort that he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, your zeal for me, so I rejoiced even more. Tyson encouraged Paul in two ways, first with his presence and then his news from Corinth. The people of Corinth listened to Paul, and they appreciated what he had to say, and they changed. There's nothing more encouraging to mature Christians than seeing lives changed, seeing people take next steps taking responsibility, sharing their faith, inviting friends, overcoming addictions. Last week, Craig Edmonds shared with me a story, wrote to me about a random act a stranger did for him. He said, I was at a restaurant with a friend in line, and a woman came up to me and said she recognized me from somewhere in the community. He said they talked and they couldn't quite figure out where she recognized him from. 
When the conversation ended, she paused and looked at me, Craig said, and asked, how can I pray for you? Craig said, often I've asked that question to other people, and then I realized this is the first time anybody outside my friends ever asked that question to me. He said, I experienced a flood of emotions, humility, gratefulness, surprise, all at once. He said, it was powerful. If you have a chance, ask Craig about this story. It's a great story. But he says, this is where the story gets cool. We started talking about where we worked. I said, new life. She said, I go to new life too. That's where I've seen you. You're the guy who's out in the front in the parking lot. Yeah, that's okay. That's where I recognize you from. I asked her what compelled her to ask me the question, how can I pray for you? At this point, Bob, I was expecting that she would say, Brett's sermons. She didn't. She said, I once heard a sermon at New Life that a group had gone to Target and shared and asked people there how they could pray. That was not my sermon. That was Preston Condor's sermon from when I wasn't here. Always happens that way. She also kind of threw in that Brett numerous times has talked about the need to ask people, how can I pray? So she said, I thought I'd give it a try. And the first time she tried, from what I understand, was talking to Craig. Craig says, I was surprised how impactful it was to have someone I barely knew care enough to pray for me in a public setting. And then Craig asked, what if more people at New Life, what if more Christians in general, would simply ask the question, how can I pray for you? That story is so encouraging to me because it wasn't long ago that Craig Edmonds was not a Christian It wasn't long ago before he was coming out of the waters of baptism with a huge smile on his face. And to watch Craig be on fire for Christ and take next step after next step after next step and lead others to do that as well and then get really excited about this. It's just like, oh, Lord, thank you. And then and then for, I don't know who this woman is. If it's you, I'd love to meet you. You know, thank you. You've encouraged me. But to think, you know, somebody's actually listening to the sermons and taking and trying and That's so encouraging. Nothing encourages Christians more than somebody getting baptized. Hearing somebody in CR say, I've been sober for a month. Hearing about some young person who's been addicted to drugs saying, I've been clean for a hundred days. Would you pray for me? Seeing somebody say, hey, I gave a small group a try. Hey, I, I start a small group in my at my work, with anybody at work that wanted to read the Bible with me. So encouraging. Paul was encouraged when he saw changed lives and by their repentance as well. Verse 9, now I, I rejoice now not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance, for you were grieved as God willed. There is a big difference between worldly repentance and godly repentance, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. In fact, Paul continues in verse 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. You don't get much more of a contrast than, okay, the one's going to lead to life, the one's going to lead to death. Which do you want? I know you want me to spend 
a half an hour talking about the distinctions between those two. I'm not going to. I'm going to share it in a devotion this week. Very, very briefly, though, let me say, uh, godly sorrow focuses on God and others. Worldly so fo sorrow focuses on self. Usually ends up in self-pity. Godly sorrow rejects and regrets the action. Worldly sorrow regrets the consequences in getting caught. Godly sorrow is humble and teachable. Worldly sorrow is defensive and often turns the table. Who are you to judge? Person with a for, without sin should cast the first stone. Godly sorrow leads to change, makes amends. Worldly sorrow repeats the sin. I got to tell you a story. Bob Russell, <laughs> a friend of mine and mentor, tells of a time when he was a senior in high school years ago. And he had a varsity baseball game. And the Bob was a great athlete. But it was the same, at that very same weekend, his sister, Roseanne, was graduating from college in Cincinnati with honors. Bob and Roseanne had always been really close, and Bob faced a decision. His parents let him choose. Are you going to go 300 miles away to Cincinnati to encourage, be with your sister, encourage your sister, or are you going to play baseball. Bob says, I made the selfish choice. I stayed home. As soon as my parents, this would have been in the, in the 50s, as soon as my parents drove out of the driveway, I knew I was wrong. I began to cry. I knew my parents were stopping at my cousin's house to pick up my aunt, so I called them there, and I told my mother, sobbing, please tell Roseanne I'm so sorry for what I did. Bob says, then my mother said a terrible thing. She said, Bobby, I understand. We'll come back for you. <laughs> Bob, Bob said, tell Roseanne I'm not that sorry. <laughs> Worldly sorrow, I'm sorry, that's not funny. Worldly sorrow... <laughs> doesn't change. Godly sorrow does. One commentator said, if it got the chance to do the same thing again, if it thought it could escape the consequences, it certainly would do it. It doesn't at all hate the sin. It only regrets that, the sin, that, that sin got it into trouble. True repentance, a godly sorrow, is repentance which has come to see the wrongness of the thing done, not just the consequences of the thing done which it regrets. It hates the thing itself and is determined to never do it again and has dedicated the rest of its life to atone by God's grace for what it has done. And that's why godly sorrow leads to salvation. The Corinthians then encouraged Titus. I used to like to listen to the news. I don't like to listen to the news anymore because I know what it's going to be. I know it's always going to be bad, angry, that's kind of how Titus was as he, headed, as he heads to Corinth. He'd heard all the bad news about the Corinthians, and he fully expects to experience bad news. But Paul, on the other hand, has been more optimistic. Before he goes, he tells Titus, no, I see hope. I see potential. I think that they're going to learn. I think they're going to give you a great reception. He boasts on them, in fact. And then he hopes <laughs> they don't disappoint him. Have you ever been in that position? You brag about a restaurant, they have the greatest steaks in town, your friend goes, well, the steak is okay, 
Service wasn't so good. My mom, my mom has the best apple pie. You bring your friend home and apple pie's overcooked this time. So I always get a little nervous when people tell me they're bringing somebody to church because, you know, they, 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 they tell, oh, I really like your preaching, Brett, so I've invited somebody to church. I say, oh, no, no, don't, 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 don't tell people. <laughs> don't, don't tell people you think I'm a good preacher. No, 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 you tell them, our preacher really isn't that good, but everything else is great. You come, and that way, otherwise, you're going to set them up for disappointment. They're going to be like, ah, it's not that good. The Corinthian church encouraged both Titus and Paul because it didn't disappoint. Verse 13, for this reason we have been comforted. In addition to our own comfort, we received even more over the joy Titus had because his spirit was refreshed by you all. Verse 14, for if I made any boast to him about you, I have not been disappointed. But as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus has also turned out to be the truth. Paul says, I took a risk boasting on you, and you did not disappoint. And that's so encouraging. Then he praises them for the repentance, verse 15. And his affection toward you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. Can you imagine how encouraging that is for them to hear Paul's confidence in them? Keep in mind when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul talks and he tells, he calls out their divisiveness, he calls out their, their tolerance for sin, their own sinfulness, their immaturity. But now to hear Paul say, I have great confidence in you. Anybody who's ever blown it and has felt guilty and shamed and then somebody you respect says, I have great confidence in you. Let's move on together. Powerful stuff. Hebrews 8, chapter 12 God says, I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. When when somebody repents, it's not just our responsibility to forgive, it's also our responsibility not to bind them to their shame. Let me tell you the kind of church that New Life is. We're the kind of church, people come in here every week carrying their baggage, baggage that God has forgiven. We live in a world that doesn't let go of other people's baggage. In fact, people feel virtuous today. Ungracious people who don't know Christ, we shouldn't be surprised by that, but they feel good about themselves by looking down on other people as inferior. By judging other people, (laughs) they tend to judge other people's worst days according to their best days in comparison. Um, so ungracious, so unlike the God who forgives and lets go. You come here, New Life is the kind of church, we are going to tell you the truth because we love you too much not to. We're going to tell you the truth because we want you to be free and forgiven of your sin. And we're going to be the first to say, let's move on. And the reason we can say that is because we all can say with the Apostle Paul, 
we are the worst of sinners. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all at best sinners saved by grace. And I don't need people tying my shame of the past to me to get me stuck. And neither do you. And so by the grace of God, we can say, thank you, Lord. And we can say to others, let's move on. William Barclay said, it is easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. But we have a duty, a divine calling to encourage one another. Many a pat on the back, a word of praise at the right time. Pat on the back. Praise at the right time, he says, has kept a person on his feet. Let me close with a couple of applications. First of all, everybody needs encouragement. Who will you encourage today? Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, asked, how do you know if somebody needs encouragement if he's breathing? Do you know somebody who needs financial encouragement? A divorced person who feels awful and alone? A student who's away from home? young parents with three kids who can't really afford a babysitter, you could so encourage them by just offering to babysit for free. Anyone you know who deserves a promotion at work and has been passed over again, can you support them? Proverbs 3.27 says, don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when you have the power to do it. Who comes to mind right now that you need to encourage this week? that you can encourage. Maybe it's a strong person. Actions speak louder than word. Number two, encourage by what you do. My daughter Emily was dog-sitting this week. This is Buster the dog. Buster is a runner. Don't say ah. Buster's a runner. Buster got out. Buster ran. So Emily, you know, is looking for Buster, and somebody in the neighborhood, they all go Buster hunting, and somebody in the neighborhood sends out a thing to next door, and so it kind of says, Buster is on the loose. I have a feeling that Buster has a reputation because all of a sudden, she said there was like this community of people out there looking for Buster with her. There was one guy that stopped what he was doing, got in the car, was driving around looking for Buster. Do you know what it's like to lose a dog? You know what it's like to lose somebody else's dog beside a busy four-lane road. You can imagine how panicked at least I would be and my daughter was. And finally, somebody found Buster. This picture of Buster that you see is Buster after he has been busted. Do you think he looks remorseful? (laughs) I think he's oblivious. If you lost a dog, what's the best way to encourage you? You want an encouraging letter? Hey, I think well of you. You need somebody to send you flowers? No, you need somebody to stop what they're doing and help you find the lost dog. You need somebody to act. What can you do this week that by your action is going to give encouragement? I love the article by Mary Roach. She said, according to the book, Not Now, Honey, I'm Watching the Game, my husband is addicted to baseball. I, in turn, am addicted to my husband, Ed. That means that five or six times a year, I accompany him to a ballpark, though I care nothing about the San Francisco Giants and understand few subtleties of the game. Isn't that encouraging, husbands, have a wife like that? 
She continues, I would love it if my husband were addicted to me rather than to Dusty Baker and his merry men of perpetual spitters. Um, what are you going to do? If Ed is listening here today, I'd say, Ed, your wife needs more than flowers. She needs you to find out what she enjoys doing. Enjoy her in it. Do something. First John three eighteen, Dear children, let us not just merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Kids, you want to encourage your parents? Obey them the first time. Amen. Clean your… There you go. That'll give me… Uh, it's true. Husbands, wives, something, find something your spouse would appreciate about your service. The most important way we can encourage, of course, is to share Jesus. The most encouragement… The most the best encouragement you can give somebody is eternal life with Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, peace with God. You know what I really love about the Buster story more than anything? There was a community of people that when we heard the Buster was gone, they owned the lostness of Buster. The church is to be a people who own the lostness of the people around them. Jesus said, go, make disciples of all nations. The most encouraging thing you can do is to share Jesus with a lost neighbor. Paul encourages the Corinthians. Titus encourages Paul. Corinthians encouraged Titus. Now you've been encouraged, I hope. May it not stop with you. May this cycle continue because now you're going to go encourage this week. Heavenly Father, may we be your people. It's a difficult time to live in many ways and it's easy to be negative. But Lord, you are good. You are loving. You are forgiving. You are right. You are true. You remember our sins no more. We live in a world that needs truth and love that needs encouragement. Make us encouraging people, light of the world. Through Christ I pray. Amen.